The great thing about the Edinburgh Futures Institute and the whole DDI program is that it's cross-disciplinary and multidisciplinary. I went into the creative industries directly to go, well, if we're going to solve these sticky problems, who are the people I need to learn from? And what is the mindset I need to adapt to and understand? And I think the Futures Institute understands the value of that. Hello and welcome to the Data-Driven Innovation Initiative's Spring 2023 Update. I'm Kim McAllister. More fantastic work continues across the city of Edinburgh and the region. And today it is my pleasure to talk to one of the DDI ambassadors, Brianna Pigado. Brianna is an award-winning social entrepreneur. She's a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts and she's the founder of Edinburgh Student Arts Festival. Hi Brianna, how are you today? Hello, I'm well, thank you. How are you? I'm really well. I'm excited to chat to you about all the work that you've been doing and thank you for joining us on the podcast. Can we start by just learning a little bit more about you and what your work involves? Sure, and absolutely my pleasure to join you on the podcast. So at the moment, I do a lot of work on disruption and the only way I can describe it, it's around the energetics of disruption, which I'll explain in a little bit. But I started off my career in the creative industries. I set up a festival that was multidisciplinary that took place across the city of Edinburgh that ran for three and a half years. And then almost in my own way, did an apprenticeship in different aspects of the sector from theatre to design to voluntary arts to visual art and all that time that I was working in the creative industries and senior management roles I was really working on governance and later on it became also about inclusion and anti-racism but in terms of how it's kind of data comes into it. It's so interesting kind of working with artists and people in the creative industries that are working with massive amounts of data, whether or not it's their audience numbers, whether or not it's the materials they're working with to kind of make their piece of work, whether or not we're looking at how organizations are structured and set up and what kind of hierarchies exist within them. And also how artists and people in the creative industries really interact with the rest of the world. And, and from 2019 to 2020, I was executive director of Creative Edinburgh, which was part of the Creative Informatics data-driven information cluster that was looking at investing in data-driven innovation in the creative industries in Edinburgh and the Lothians. And there are a lot of programs even that still exist today from skills development programs like Raise Your Game to Future Gaze, which is still running with Caroline Parkinson, which is a series looking at the future of the creative industries that I was part of kind of the early stages of developing and designing. Um, but in, in kind of summary, a lot of the work that I do is looking at how do people think? What is the creative process like? How do organizations live, breathe, and function? And how do we disrupt things that aren't working? Kind of looking at the world of work and how creativity and the creative industries can teach us wider lessons about innovation, disruption, and ultimately power dynamics in our society. How do we interact with power? And how does that enable us to actually world build and build a future that is sustainable, that's inclusive, that's feminist, that's anti-racist, and that is data-led. Wow. I have a lot of questions. This sounds incredible. 
My first question is is around what happens when we lose that, which is what we saw during the pandemic, right? When suddenly Edinburgh was a ghost town in August, which is terrifying for someone who's lived here for so many years and has just had that energy every August. And surely that must show everyone the value of creativity and what that brings to a place, right? Yes, I I think that during the pandemic, we experienced something really fascinating. And I don't want to use such a cold word, but I'll explain what I mean by that in a moment. And obviously, there's this festival city at that point during the pandemic, I'd been in Edinburgh for 10 years. And my work has always been um, in kind of symbiosis with the Edinburgh festival season. You know, we have 13 major festivals in the city, generate millions of pounds. The fest- the city population doubles in size every August. And also how that interacts with local residents and the other aspects of the creative industries in Edinburgh is really fascinating because we have activity year round. We have massive parts of the creative industries. We have a huge publishing sector in Edinburgh. We have people working in graphics and design. And we have, you know, artists that are performing at at the fringe you know performance artists and I think when the pandemic hit we actually were already at quite a critical point for the arts and creative industries because we'd already been experiencing 10 years of austerity and I think when it came to publicly funded arts a lot of funding had been cut to a lot of the um, different sectors of the arts then you have this massively fast-growing aspect of the creative industries I think to this day it's still the fastest growing sector in the UK um, around kind of tech and IT and data-driven aspects of the creative industries. And it was this very unique moment of a skills gap emerging amongst artists and people in the creative industries that felt they didn't engage with data directly, though they did. And then people that were really more comfortable with new tech thinking about, you know, virtual reality, augmented reality, artificial intelligence, thinking about gamification and kind of maybe in aspects of the kind of more traditional, I'd say, data-driven aspects of the creative industries, where there was a real opportunity for us to go, I think, in a lot of aspects of society, and I don't know if we did this necessarily, what's working and what's not working and who has access and who doesn't. I think that the pandemic was a real insight into those skills gaps and access gaps, while also kind of kick-started a lot of innovation and gave people time who, of course, weren't frontline workers or um, in roles where they had to be working almost 24-7 to protect us and support us during the pandemic, where people did have maybe a lot more time to be creative. We know that people that were at home and in lockdown were baking and drawing and knitting and doing all sorts of things that maybe they never had time to do and taking up hobbies that they safely could at home. And I think back to your question about valuing the arts and creative sector and creative industries, I think we have this very odd relationship to the creative industries because we will consume all of this content. You know, we're on socials. We love films and TV shows. Um, There are parts of the arts and creative industries that we go, yeah, it's a fundamental part of our day-to-day lives. We wouldn't be in the homes that we're in if architects hadn't designed them. We wouldn't be sitting on furniture if craft makers and designers hadn't crafted them. You know, we owe so much of our built environment and lived environment to artists and designers and creatives. But then when it comes to aspects of the arts that might be ballet or theater or community kind of programs that it has been cut and underfunded and I 
what I'm getting at is, is in terms of the value of the arts, we value the arts and creativity, but I think quite often a lot of people don't understand the creative process and the time and effort and energy that goes into making something, a piece of creative work, an object, a story. And so because that process is not visible, you think about musicians, you know, they they publish an album, you know, it goes out, out into the world. You don't know that's taken three years or 10 years to make, or you read a book, you don't know that's taken a year and a half to write. So I think that time, the time to create is maybe undervalued. So we're looking at a polished, finished product. And actually artists and creatives undervalue their time. And I think that is not always compensated for well. So we're actually looking at an industry where there's a lot of, work precarity, where in Scotland, the median income of an artist is £12,000 a year, whereas you have these massive companies that are growing as well, that are making millions. So there is a bit of inequality there. But yes, the pandemic definitely brought up an opportunity for us as well. So it sounds like we're in a bit of a period of change where, you know, we're going to have to value art and creative industries differently. We're going to have to improve access on lots of different levels. And so given that you are a DDI ambassador, what kind of role do you think that the program and in particular the Edinburgh Futures Institute might be able to play in, in helping with some of those issues? The great thing about the Edinburgh Futures Institute and the whole DDI program is that it's cross-disciplinary and multidisciplinary. And I should say that my time at Edinburgh, I started off in sustainable development, which in the, at the time that I studied it was the first time that degree had existed in the University of Edinburgh's history. So looking at the new degree programs that are coming out of the Futures Institute, the fact that the Futures Institute is really meant to be as it's being called a living room for the city and a living room for the world. And people are supposed to rub shoulders and bump into each other from different aspects of society to the public, from the public sector to the private sector to the third sector, um, students as well, of course, being at the center of that. I think the idea and the notion that the Futures Institute is actually focusing on how do we address our future challenges and how do we work and collaborate in a way that allows us to think outside of the box for lack of a better phrase and also really value people coming from different aspects of society to come together to disrupt to innovate to understand our world to prepare and make sure we're living in a world that we love and that is safe and that is livable and that has a future I think is incredibly important and quite often when people ask me why I went into the creative industries because they'll think well you studied the climate crisis what does that have to do with the creative industries it's quite funny because I think this very much aligns with the Futures Institute I came out of my degree incredibly depressed okay Four years thinking about all of the catastrophic ways human life on the planet was under threat, you know, all of the endangered species, you know, all these different aspects as we were looking at the economic, social and political interactions and aspects of the climate crisis, which aren't only complex, they are very big, sticky problems with people that have a lot of different motivations. So I came out of that thinking, right, uh, I feel really depressed. <laughs> What's going to cheer me up? What's that I've always loved but more importantly where can I go to a space that is and you know expansive and endless when it comes to possibilities for the future and I'm not saying that art shouldn't be made for art's sake it most certainly should be made for art's sake and artists and creatives 
make art because that's how they interact with the world and process it. It's not for anyone a lot of the time. It's just how creative beings and creative people interact with life. But also, I think when you look at the creative industries and the skill set within it, which is people that are incredibly comfortable with uncertainty, that are comfortable with sticky problems, are comfortable with a process that might have a lot of in air quotes, failure. I don't see it as failure. You know, we talk about prototyping and design thinking that you're making lots of different versions of a thing until you make something that works. You know, it's not a failure, all those previous versions of it. But having that mindset and mentality of we're exploring, we're world building, we're building our own mini universes and all of the different things that we're creating. We're very comfortable with precarity and uncertainty from everything I talked about around actually the way people work and the precarity of the work space, but also just you're, you're creating something out of nothing, you know, from raw materials, whether or not it's sound or paint or body movement or something that's digital and virtual. And actually I went into the creative industries directly to go, well, if we're going to solve these sticky problems, who are the people I need to learn from? And what is the mindset I need to adapt and understand and I think the Futures Institute understands the value of that and when it comes to kind of creative informatics this whole notion that create creativity is combined with informatics is combined with um, you know um, AI and kind of tech and understanding the creativity that is fundamentally embedded into that uh, new tech process is so important so I think that if anything, and any institution is going to kind of create the conditions that we need to bring people together, to respect and learn from one another, and to understand a, a creative process because fundamentally coming up with solutions to the world's problems and also coming up with new beautiful things that are not uh, solutions to problematic issues comes from a creative space fundamentally. And that's why I think that's at the core of the Futures Institute and everything it is trying to offer to the world. It is. It's a really exciting proposition and it's such a gorgeous building. And it's one that's very familiar to the people of the city because it's obviously the previous infirmary and and it's right central. It's right next to the university. So, I mean, I think we're right to have high hopes from it, right? Yes, we are. (laughs) Are you going to be working there yourself? Are you looking forward to doing anything specific in the building? I am looking forward to it. I mean, it's it's quite funny. I think, you know, uh, I'm an Edinburgh alumna, but I've never really left the university. My first job was president of the Students Association. I stayed involved on the General Council Business Committee at the University of Edinburgh, very involved with the alumni office. And I really love the kind of um, prospect of being able to come into the building. But there's another kind of story to this whole idea of, this living room for the city because back when I was at university Stanford Design School in the States the University of Stanford had come up with these new models for the future of higher education and university and the proposition I think was called Stanford 2020 and at the time they were looking at what Stanford could look like by 2020 and this whole idea were these different models for education where 
um, you could come in and they had these beautiful little design videos that you could come in and there's this idea of being popularized. So instead of being an alumni of the university, you could always be part of the university community, come in and out of the buildings, go to lectures, hear talks, interact with the new ideas that were coming in to the university because as a student of the university and as a member of that local community, you were part of it. And also mm-hmm. this notion that you could do, you could kind of create your own custom journey through the university. And instead of studying a degree, you would have a mission that you were trying to accomplish and whatever you needed to do to accomplish that mission would be there. So I see that a lot of the conversations we had at the university at the time around what is the purpose of higher education? What is university for? What sort of you know relationship do we want to have to the city of Edinburgh and to the people of Edinburgh? And how can we actually counterbalance maybe these ideas of a university being an ivory tower and academia being inaccessible so I think that the Futures Institute building the fact that it's in the former Royal Infirmary the fact that it's in the center of the city well you know a center of the old town and the fact that it should be open to anyone is fundamentally part of the ethos of those really kind of fundamental conversations we were having around what university is for. So I'm really pleased to see that happening and, and for Edinburgh and the Futures Institute to be kind of taking its own spin and really fundamentally deconstructing, I hope, in a lot of ways, the university experience for a lot of people. And I think back to the pandemic, we know that we can't operate in the same ways that we were before. We know that hybrid kind of working spaces and environments are more accessible for people in a lot of ways. Um, but also it's required for us to kind of rethink how we're interacting with one another, how we're learning and how information is going to be distributed, shared, cultivated um, and collaborated on as well. Yeah. I do. I love what you're saying about it being accessible because that's such a fundamental part of the creative industry itself, but also about the data-driven innovation program, bringing data to everybody who might not necessarily have thought that data was a part of what they do. And and it's it sounds like we're all on the right track with that. I mean, do you feel like it's going to reach the right people? Do you think there's more that could be done? Well, Whenever I work with an organization and we're talking about accessibility and we're talking about intersectional approaches to work, and when I say intersectional, I mean thinking about all of the protected characteristics, thinking about all identities that people might have when they're coming into a space or interacting with an organization or a company, I actually think it's very important for DDI and for the Futures Institute to be incredibly intentional about how the space is designed and how it's talked about and where it's talked about in the city. Because it's quite easy for us to kind of build a building and go, it's accessible, anyone can come. But actually, having a really clear understanding of the perception of the university, of that space, of what academia is for, is quite critical and quite crucial to going, people might actually experience barriers to coming into this building. People that are first generation going to uni or their parents have and grandparents never went to uni or college. Um, people that maybe don't spend a lot of time in the old town of the city, live in the outskirts of the city. There's a the physical accessibility of the building. You know, can people get into the building if they're not able-bodied? But also when it comes to class, when it comes to ethnicity, religion, all sorts of things, um, age, it's really important to think about 
what type of people might be coming to the building and having a really clear picture of who they are, what their perceptions might be of being in a university setting at all, being in a space for ideas, when someone might be more practical or not comfortable thinking about things like that, or maybe their opinions and ideas we're not welcome and historically, you know, so I think we've got a lot of work to do and I think it's happening around actually what barriers might exist and what can we do to proactively counteract those. And when we were, when I set up the Edinburgh Student Arts Festival in 2014, it was set up in reaction to the fringe. You know, you've got this huge Edinburgh festival season in August. Who can't access that? People working uh, during the summertime, who are not in the city during the summer. And the Fringe is an incredible international over 70-year-old platform, one of the first, you know, Fringe festivals ever. But it's incredibly competitive. There are people coming from all over the world. There are people coming up from down south. And actually, local emerging artists or creatives or young people didn't feel that they had um, the platform, the contacts, the experience, um, and any control over what was being chosen in the festival program. And of course, there's the international festival, the jazz and blues festival, the film festival, you know, the book festival, so many other things. But actually, there's a lot of beauty that can come from saying what already exists and what doesn't exist for others and how can they tell us and how can we co-design and co-create what is needed for them. It's not even just feel safe in this space and to come to it. Because I know that phrase safe space is chucked around a lot, but how can actually we create the conditions for someone to actively contribute and to be part of a conversation and discussion and creating something? So I definitely know the Futures Institute is thinking about this, but that's a continuous piece of work. It's not something you think about once and you're finished. So I think that's part of the philosophy, I hope, of how the space will be used. Oh, I'm so excited for it to open. And and I mean, the work's already started. It's that we were not waiting for the doors to open for suddenly things to happen. Things are already happening, which is really cool. And we're actually halfway through the DDI, sorry, the Data Driven Innovation Initiative right now. We're five years into a 10 year program and some of the results already are amazing. So I guess from your personal point of view, you are a DDI ambassador. What would you like to see happen? What would be helpful from your point of view? What What are you hoping for in the next five years? So the Creative Informatics program, you're right, is coming to an end very soon. And that's been running for nearly five years now. And that's included um, challenge projects, horizon projects. It's, it's included a kind of connected innovator strand. So it's invested money in spin out companies and startups that are creative in nature and that are looking to scale and grow. It's kind of allowed the city and different organizations and and people in the city to go to the creative sector and say, we have this problem, this challenge. Can you respond to this with a creative idea, a creative way of working through this? And then we've had kind of individuals that have been innovative or ideas that have been innovative that needed some startup funding to kind of do some professional development or some skills upskilling to kind of create something that is different. And my hope for the DDI program and the future of creative informatics is that it's there's a legacy that continues that's embedded in the Futures Institute. Because again, I think that funding, you know, for the creative sector and creative industries was so needed because there's a there's such a kind of imbalance around what is really invested in. You know, tech is new and shiny and exciting and very scalable, but I think it's just as important 
that, you know, an artist that is tracking bird migration through knitting and through textiles gets the funding that they need to be able to continue that work. Um, or an artist that's looking at geometric patterns and sounds and, and how actually our voice can be transmuted into geometric patterns and more data, you know, is, is kind of protected. I think that if Edinburgh wants to be data capital of Europe very soon, I think that's by 2030, and continue to be a hub for creativity outside of London. I think that there's so many other creative hubs across the UK, but the unique thing about Scotland is that its population is, what, four and a half million these days, maybe five nearly. And there's a real attitude of collaboration over competition. And there's a real beauty around the understanding of storytelling, around materials and textiles. You look at the history of even, you know, what Akeli means to take a turn and to tell stories. You look at Doric and Gaelic and all of the languages in the country that have passed down incredible stories for centuries. You look at the landscape and how people have written about the landscape but literally made textiles from the landscape. And you look at the fact that this is a creative place within the Scottish Enlightenment. I mean, some of the inventions of the Scottish Enlightenment, you know, yes, from economics and capitalism, but to all these glorious inventions that, you know, really kick-started the Industrial Revolution um, have had such a significant impact on the world. And I think that we need to protect that legacy, but we also need to be critical about it and think about what sort of future legacy do we want to have? Do we want to have a creative industries that's creating more objects for the sake of it? Or do we want a creative industries that's incredibly empathetic and incredibly future looking and incredibly protective of our environment and our planet? And that's creating space for people to come together from all backgrounds. So I think that we're five years into this incredible investment in these companies and startups and innovators and challenges that have been answered. And I'd really love to see the next five years be a space for more collaboration, but also a space for us to be critical about the world that we're living in and looking at injections into the arts and creative industries that allow people to continue to make work and to tell stories and to invent things, but also to interact with all the other branches of DDI, you know, from health and social care, uh, to so many other aspects of what's going on within the DDI program. Yeah. Well, this has been wonderful. I've really enjoyed chatting with you. Thank you, Brianna. My pleasure. <laughs> you can follow Brianna on Twitter at Brianna underscore Pegado. She's also on LinkedIn, Instagram and Facebook. And in fact, she's just published a book called Make Good Trouble, a practical guide to the energetics of disruption. For more great stories from the Data Driven Innovation Initiative, go to ddi.ac.uk.